Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Okay, we're going to start chapter 5. And so it came to pass on the third day. It is noteworthy that the word Vayehi heralds something big about to happen. And this royal face-off is a very fateful moment for Esther. In fact, it is the closest Esther comes to a brush with death. As we're going to see today, Esther comes within literally centimeters of her end. And then miraculously things start to change. Um, I, the truth is that we don't talk about miracles yet. Miracles is, you know, Balayla, who, and that night when the king wakes up, that's when we start to see the miracles unfold. However, what, does, what happens in this encounter is, is kind of miraculous, as you'll see. So that's why he heralds this big, big deal. And it should be noted that the word Vayehi is used numerous times in the scripture to herald something big happening. Here it says, Vayehi Bayom Hashlishi, and so it was on the third day. And interestingly, when the Torah is given, it also says, Vayehi Bayom Hashlishi. It came to pass on the third day. And there is a unique corollary between Matan Torah and between the story of Purim. As we say, the Gemara tells us, Kimu Vakiblu that the Jewish people affirmed and re-accepted, that which they had accepted earlier, now they affirmed, and there was this idea that we accepted the Torah at Har Sinai, but the acceptance was incomplete, because we were kind of coerced into it, because God overwhelmed us, because we got cold feet, and when we got cold feet, God said, you need to do this. And overwhelmed as we were, we said yes, but that means that the acceptance wasn't absolute. Whereas on Purim, there were no revelations. There was no coercion, so to speak. We could easily have assimilated and saved ourselves. And yet, we remain loyal to Hashem. So there is this idea of Purim and the story of Purim, the miracle of Purim, completing that which begins at Har Sinai. Uh, a special connection between Shavuot and between Purim. And there's a halacha that even says that before we start Su'udat Purim, which is Mishtehayayin, which is the Feast of Wine, and that brings to mind Esther's feasts. But before we do that, we should study some Torah, because Purim is uniquely connected to Kabbalah Satir. So I thought that's just interesting to point out. Now, Lugufi Shaldova, going back to the actual, what the actual scripture talks about, Vayehi, it came to pass, Bayoim Hashlishi, on the third day. When was this third day? It says, Vayehi Bayim Hashlishi. Now, you're going to say the third day of a fast. And it should be noted that on the third day of a fast, Esther was probably very weak. Not a good idea. Why did she go to see the king? She's trying to impress him, not with spirituality. He's not a very spiritually minded fellow. Remember, he had a beauty pageant to see which queen he was going to choose. And he didn't just uh, have lunch with everybody. So... Esther ostensibly has to use natural means. Why would, she, why would she abandon the most logical thing and pretty herself and do whatever is necessary to look her best for three days? So really there are two opinions about this. One opinion is that it was a miracle. Esther relied on miracles. She knew that what was required here was a ness. So she said, if I need a miracle, then I need, I need to do what is required of a miracle. I'll put on the clothes, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be fasting and davening so a miracle happens for me. Another approach, an interesting approach is that sometimes beauty-wise it's effective to fast. Esther went through an effective detoxing. 
She figures she won't eat any food for three days. And then the question is, on the third day, did she actually eat? And there is an opinion that says yes. There is an opinion that, that maintains that they fasted for three days. And then on the third day, which would be the day after the fasting started, that's when Esther actually went. And, and from that approach, we would say, would mean after three days. The last approach is a little weak. It's a little weak because it says, So ostensibly, this is the third day. And the strange thing is that even though we seem to identify this day, we say, and it was on the third day, despite the fact that we're identifying the day, it's unclear which day this was. Why is it unclear? It's unclear because although it says, and as the Medrash Rabbah says, that Hashem does not put Sadiqim, righteous Jewish people, under the rest for more than three days, that on the third day Hashem would answer. As it says, the Medrash Rabbah says, by Yosef, when Yosef at Sadiq took his brothers and locked them up to frighten them, it says, by Yosef, Yosef Aysam, El Mishmar, he, he, he took them, he incarcerated them, in three days. By Yonah, it says that when Yonah was swallowed by the fish, by Yehi, it was, and that Yonah was in the Daga, in three days. And the Medrash Shabbos says, when Mashiach will come, there will be something, it says, by Hashlishi, on the third day, we will rise and live. So there's this idea of three days, and on the third day, something remarkable happens. Okay, that's great. So we know there has to be three days, and we'll soon see when Esther prays, she invokes this idea of the three days of fasting and the symbolism behind the number three. But the obvious question is, which day is it? So lest you think that it's, it's so simple which day it is, let me tell you a little secret. In Rashi itself, there seems to be a contradiction. Because Rashi earlier, when he talked about the fasting... Rashi says, Vayavar Mordechai. Earlier in verse 17, if you take back, we'll take a look back in the Pasuk, the last Pasuk of the previous chapter. It says, Mordechai went, Vayavar means transgressed, or went over. So Rashi interprets it, transgressed, Aldos Lisanus Tov. He transgressed Yom Tov, and they were gonna fast on Yom Tov. And when did they fast? Says Rashi, Hisane Yudalad Nisan, the 14th day of Nisan, which is Erev Pesach, Tetvav, the 15th day of, of Nisan, and Tetzayin, the 16th day, which is the first two days of Pesach. And ostensibly living outside of Eretz Yisrael, they had to keep two days of Pesach. And so they kept three days of fasting, the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th. So this would be, this would be three days of fasting. And Rashi says, Shaharei, because, Biyom Yud Gimel Asmarim. The books were written, the messages that went out to all the, 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 the uh, kingdoms or all the provinces were authored on the 13th day. And so Mordechai comes on the 14th day. They fast the 14th day, the 15th day, and the 16th day. So which day is it? Which day did this happen? By Yom HaShlishi on the third day. So when would that ostensibly be? The 16th day of Nisan, which is the second day of Pesach. So that seems pretty clear. And if so, if that's, if that's what we call the third day, that's the Vetsumu Alai Shlesha, Valtechlu, Valtishtu, Shlesha, Yamim, you fast for three days. The third day, the third day of the fast. If so, if that was the third day of the fast, Esther's gonna come and ask for what? For FaceTime. She wants FaceTime. She says, Dachashverosh, come to my house. We're gonna have a private, 
a private little party. Well, not so private. You have Haman there too. She wants to put Haman in a, in a position where Achashverosh becomes suspicious of him. For very good reasons. He was a suspicious guy. He was always plotting. And then, at the, at the, at the next party, she points her finger at Haman. So when did that happen? When was that? Haman would have been hung the next day, the day after she came, which would have been the 17th. So the books are written. The edict is written on the 13th. They fast the 14th, the 15th, the 16th. By Hebe Yom Shlishi is the 16th day of Nisan. Follow the opinion that she's still in the middle of a fast, whether that's a form of detoxing or whether that's some kind of relying on a miracle. And on the 17th day, Haman is hung. Yes? Rashi? Very clear? Okay. So now, if you take a look at Masechet Megillah, on page 16, you'll see something very different. Over there, the Megillah analyzes, the Gemara analyzes the Megillah, verse by verse by verse. And over there, at that point, the Gemara is analyzing the idea of Yom Hashlishi. And the Gemara says, Rashi explains, that Yom Hashlishi, when Esther did this, was the third day after the runners left. The third day after Haratzim Yatsu Duchufim, which was on the 13th. And according to that Cheshben, they fasted on the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. In which case, this Bayom HaShlishi, according to Rashi in his commentary in the Talmud is, on the 15th, first day of Pesach, which means that on the second day of Pesach, the 16th is the day Haman was hung. Depends that you start from the 13th, you count 13, 14, 15. And then the, the 15th is the third day. So Haman gets hung the next day. Or do we say, the 13th day the edict was written. The 14th, 15th, and 16th they fasted. On the 17th day, Haman was hung. The problem is that Rashi, in his commentary here on the Megillah, is very clear that it's speaking about fasting on 14, 15, 16. Haman being hung on 17. However, in Rashi's commentary in the Gemara, he talks about fasting 13, 14, 15, which means Haman gets hung on the 16th. So we have now a, a dispute within Rashi itself as what is Vahiba Yemashlishi. So the scripture is very, very clear. It says Vahiba Yemashlishi. This was the third day. We're not sure which third day. Third day of what? Third day of the writing of the edict, when the edict was issued, or third day of when they started the fast, which was the next day, the day after the edict is written. So what if I tell you that there's a halachic ruling, halachic ruling, that Haman was hung on the 16th day of Nisan? What would you ask me if I tell you there's a halachic ruling like that? No? <laughs> Why is there a halachic ruling when Haman died? <laughs> Who cares when Haman died? Somebody has to say, Kaddish. Why would the halacha speak about that? The story happened very quickly. Yes, this most of the story of the Megillah happened very quickly. Yeah, three days, that's true. That's true. Although, the story of the Megillah is in years. It's years, closer to a decade. The whole story of the Megillah. But now, this things, things unfold very quickly. But then there's a long delay. Because till the Jewish people defend themselves is a full 11 months. This is Pesach. doesn't happen till Purim. It's not so simple. Why does the halacha talk about Haman's, the day Haman was hung? <laughs> Who cares? So in, uh, in Shulchan Aruch, 
in Simon Tafresh Tzadik, which is the the 590th chapter of Erechayim, the Alter Rebbe speaks about the second day of Yom Tov. And there, the beginning of that Simon, the Alter Rebbe says, and I quote, Toiv laseis ezadover, besudas beyom beis, it's good to do something at the, at the Yom Tov meal on the second day, lezecher lesaudas Esther, as a memory of the Sauda of Esther, which was on this day, So that day was the day that Haman was hung. And therefore in many communities it's customary to sing Shoshana's Yaakov on the second day of Pesach. And even to do something. People do serve different things at the table. It's to make some kind of memory of the story of Haman. Can't serve Haman Tash and the Chomets, obviously, right? Okay, so there's halacha. It's telling us what we should do. We should actually do on the second day of Pesach. We make a point of bringing to mind the story of Purim. No, it's not in the Haggadah because the Haggadah tells you what to do at night. This is during the day. This is during the day, and there's no there's no formal list of things to read or sing or say. But Shochanach, this is what it says. Incidentally, there is another approach to this whole thing. And the Medrash is an opinion that Vatsumu Alai, Valtechlo Valtishtu, is three days, which is the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. And according to the Medrash, comes out that it was the third day of the fast. And the third day of the fast was the 15th day. And Haman is hung on the 16th day, which is exactly what it says in Shukhan And that's the opinion of Rashi in the Gemara. So, Vayihi, it was on the day of the third day. I say, great. Third day of what? The scripture tells us which day. But it's not even clear which day that is. So, the Rebbe suggested a fascinating way to resolve these seeming disparate opinions. Rashi, in his commentary on the Megillah, has to explain... How is it that Mordechai knew what happened? It says, Mordechai Yoda is called This is the beginning of the last chapter. Beginning of chapter 4 was, and Mordechai knew. And that's why he comes to Esther, and then he has, he remonstrates with Esther, and she sends messages back and forth, and, and Hasach is killed. There's a lot of intrigue going on in chapter 4. When chapter 4 ends, how does it end? It ends with Esther giving instructions, Mordechai agrees, a fast of three days is initiated, chapter 5 begins now, Esther makes the bold move, royal face-off. She's going to have her fateful moment. She's going to enter the lion's den. Euphemistically, Ahasuerus' throne room, she's probably getting killed. That, that's what's supposed to happen. If things were to follow the normal narrative, that Esther gets killed. Here's where Esther dies. And in fact, Ahasuerus wanted to do that. You'll soon see. So it says, Mordechai Yoda. Mordechai knew. How did he know? How did he know? What did Haman send a message? Oh, Mordechai, by the way, I want you to know I'm planning to kill you and all you Jews. Not only this, but if you remember, we discussed in our previous classes last year, we talked about the idea of Haman using opaque language. He didn't say we're going to kill the Jews. He said, get ready, something special is going to happen. He wanted to keep this as a secret. It was, it was supposed to be a surprise attack. Nobody was supposed to know about this till the last moment. And if you remember, at the time I drew corollary between the kind of secrecy that the Nazis used, Yemach 
the Nazis never wrote clearly extermination. They never wrote killing Jews. They wrote Sonderbehandlung. That was their official code name. The code name for the, the gas chambers was special handling. As if the people were like objects in the post office. Slated for special handling. Special handling meant the gas chambers and crematorium. And they didn't want to leave a paper trail. They didn't want people even to be able to find later the story. They had planned to destroy all the evidence. Imagine we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they had done what they had intended to do. If the war had gone better for them. Imagine how they would have built a cover the tracks up. They would have destroyed all the evidence. And there would be no paper trail. It's also interesting to note, I didn't point this out when we studied chapter 4, but it's really interesting that the first edict against the Jewish people, which is, of course, in Mitzrayim, was also done with secrecy. The Pharaoh never overtly says in the beginning he wants to kill all the Jews. In fact, when he wants to kill the babies, who does, whose help does he enlist? Shifra and Pua, the mother and sister of Moshe. And he says, just do it quickly before they see. And then when he confronts them, he says, why didn't you do what I said? What's their response? We couldn't. They knew already. The babies were born already. We, we were just there to help. We, we really can't do anything. These are animals. They give birth by themselves. Only then did the Pharaoh see he has no choice. Only then did he go out into the open. And yet the Nazis were open about it too, in the end, in the very end. But in the beginning, they were very secretive. So this is a pattern, pattern in Jewish history. We see it in Mitzrayim, we see it with Haman, we see it with Hitler. This, we see this, this pattern of they try always to hide what they're doing, hide, cover the tracks. Nobody should know. So how did he know? If Haman took all these pains to cover his tracks, and nobody was going to know about this, this was a secret plan, Mordechai Yoda. How did Mordechai know? So Rashi says, Mordechai Yoda, he says that Eliyahu Navi came to him in a dream. He had a dream. That's what Rashi says there. And because he had a dream, Mordechai Yoda was through this idea of a cholom, be'abal ha'cholom omarlai. So that's how Mordechai was, became aware of it. However, in the Targum Sheni, as well as the Medrash, which we talked about at the time, it says Elio Hanavi himself appeared and told Mordechai. So the Rebbe reasons, listen how brilliant this is. If Elio Hanavi is going to come and tell Mordechai, because he wants to galvanize Mordechai to galvanize the Jewish people, he wants to get everybody up in arms, spiritual arms, to do something about the situation. When do you think Mordechai would come? If Mordechai is going to come, if, 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 if Mordechai is, pardon me, Elio is going to come, Mordechai will have what's called Gili Elio. He has, Elio reveals himself to him. Okay? He's got an angel visiting him. And the angel says, this is what's about to happen. You must go out there and rally the people. They must do tshuva. They must experience renewal, spiritual rehabilitation. We have to turn things around. When would Elio Anavi have come? Surely right away. What, which day would that be? On the day it happened. On the 13th day. However, if Mordechai only had a vision in a dream, which is, let's say, less fantastical, it's less miraculous. Dreams could be had by regular people also. In a level of pshuto shomikra, if you want to talk about it on a very simple level, unless it says there was a miracle, we kind of make assumptions there was a miracle, but it says Mordechai knows, how would he know? He had a dream. Do you know that there's a halacha that says that if you have a dream which disturbs you very much, you're allowed to fast on Shabbos? We actually referenced this in our previous class as a halachic backing, a basis for fasting on Yom Tov. 
that under duress, when there is a circumstance that requires it, we're allowed to supersede the needs to eat on Yom Tov. And we said, even if you want us to say that they ate at, at, at Ben Hashemashot at twilight, they definitely didn't fulfill the mitzvahs. Because you can't eat matzah at twilight. That wouldn't work. Had it, where does that come from? There's this idea. It's a halacha in Shogun Aruch. For today. It's a real halacha for now. If you have a horrible dream on Friday night, and you feel that you're being shown something of the future, you're allowed to fast on Shabbos. What's fasting? Fasting is an act of tshuva. That means for whatever reason, Hashem in His kindness has allowed me a window into the future. I should know that this is what's about to happen. And because I know this is what's about to happen, I need to fast now. I need to do tshuva. And because because fasting is one of the ways of tshuva, I'm allowed to fast even on Shabbos. So if the Shulchan Aruch says that about regular people, it's not far-fetched that Mordechai should have such a dream. It's not far-fetched. Even ordinary people. Mordechai was the leader of his generation. He was like a Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't say openly about Mordechai's prophecy, but it says that Mordechai knew. So it says he had a dream. That's not far-fetched. That's certainly much less fantastical. It's much less miraculous. It's much less otherworldly and ethereal than Elio and Avi showing up at Mordechai's doorstep. So if he had a dream, when did he have the dream? When do people usually have dreams? When they sleep. We don't have to make assumption. The Mordechai went for a nap all of a sudden. So if he had a dream, when was it? The day after the edict was written. When was the edict written? On the 13th day. When did he have the dream? That night. He woke up in the morning. Which day was it? The 14th. Put on sackcloth and ashes. What the siesta? So if Mordechai did not have Gilu Elio, he didn't have Elio and Avi, an angel knocking on his doorstep and coming and conveying the message to him, but instead he had a dream, which is fairly normal. It's within the framework of what we're going to call everyday life as we could imagine it. Well, in that case, now it makes perfect sense that what would the three days be? The 14th, the 15th, and the 16th. And this, interestingly, the Rebbe didn't say this, but I, w- I want to add that this really follows the general approach or distinction we see between Rashi on the Scripture and Rashi in the Talmud. He does not always say the same thing. We have talked about this many times in, in the actual Chumash, in the five books of Moshe, that in Halacha, when we learn like in Chumash Devarim, which are full of mitzvahs, Rashi will interpret sometimes things, Shaloi Kafi Halacha. He'll, he'll give an interpretation of something in the Chumash according to what the Sifri says, which is not Halacha. A Torah idea, and Rashi himself will say otherwise in the Gemara. Because the Gemara is halacha. The Gemara is the basis for Jewish rulings, for the Jewish law. That's what it is. Torah Shabbat, it's law. Whereas the Chumash is a narrative. That's the story of Torah. So in the story of Torah, which is filled with inspiration, guidance, it doesn't always have to follow the exact halacha. So if Rashi will have a choice to choose between an interpretation which is fully halachically sound, or an interpretation which is true, a Torah idea, a true Torah idea, but it's not the halacha. And it comes to Chumash, Rashi will choose the idea which is in closer keeping with Pshuto Shomikra. He'll follow Pshat rather than follow the halacha. Whereas Rashi and the Gemara will always follow the halacha. It's a different method. There's Pshat, there's Remez, there's Drush, there's so different methods of study. So different methods. When you learn the Chumash or the Mikra, which is the scripture, let's say the Megillah, in the way of Pshat, it makes perfect sense that Mordechai should have a dream. Because Mordechai Yoda doesn't say how he knew. How could he know? He had a dream. If he had a dream, naturally, which day would that be? 
after, after the 13th, the night of the, of the eve of the 14th. So then the fasting would be 14th, 15th, 16th. And that's says, Vahib Lishi. If you follow the simple meaning, Vahib Lishi, which three days? We just talked before about three days of fasting. So if you talked about three days of fasting, and now it says it came to pass on the third day, it would be the third day of the fast. And since Mordechai didn't know at the 13th, he only found it on the night of the, after the 13th, eve of the 14th, the three days of fasting would be 14, 15, 16. Haman must have got hung on the 17th. However, the Gemara follows the Medrash, which says that Mordechai knew immediately. There's absolutely no logic that Mordechai knew on the 13th. And he decided to chill out. On the 14th, he was going to go make a big deal. As if he knows Eliyahu and Avi came to him and conveyed a message to him, Mordechai didn't waste a second. That was part of his argument to Esther. Esther said, it's not a good time now. Come back next week. Maybe next month we'll do something. Mordechai said, no, now. We have to do something this moment. So if Mordechai himself emphasized, now then it's only logical to say that had Mordechai become aware on the 13th, that immediately he would have done something about it. If so, that makes perfect sense. If he by Yom HaShlishi, the third day should be the 15th of Nisan, not the 16th. Fasted the 13th, they fasted the 14th, they fasted the 15th, on that third day, Esther is going to do what we're going to read about in a moment, and then Haman gets hung on the 16th. And since the Halacha follows the Gemara, that's Jewish law. Even though that particular portion of Gemara is not really halachically oriented, it's, it's in the realm of drush, it's in the realm of, of, of homily and, and interpretation and brings stories about the Megillah. Nonetheless, since the Gemara, generally speaking, is from the frame of halacha, so it makes perfect sense that when did, when did, Mordechai, when did Mordechai come to Esther on the 13th? And if so, this would be the 15th. So bottom line, this was Bayem Ashlishi, which could either be the 15th day of Nisan, the first day of Pesach, or the 16th day of Nisan, the second day of Pesach. Got it? Okay. So now that we have established that, we now we know Vayihi, something really big is about to happen. It's Vayom HaShlishi. Same exact terminology, same verbiage we used introducing Matan Torah. Nothing less. What does Esther do? Says the Megillah, and so it was on this third day. Vatilbash Esther Malchus. Esther wore royalty. She donned royalty. Let's stop right there. What did she do? What did she what did she put on? What did she don? What did she dress up in? Clothes. Usually people dress up in clothes. That's what's common. Maybe a crown is a form of a clothes. Look, it's, it's an accoutrement. So Rashi is very bothered by the fact that it says Malchus. What should it have said? Vatilbash Esther, Esther dressed in big day Malchus. It said it should have said she dressed in royal clothing. It doesn't say that. She dressed in royalty. So Rashi therefore says, number one, he says Malchus. Malchus royalty means royal clothing. Big day Malchus. That's number one. However, because the scripture doesn't say big day Malchus, because the scripture says Malchus, it doesn't say clothes of royalty, it says royalty. So because of this, Rashi feels compelled to share with you the teaching of our rabbis. And here Rashi is referencing what says in the Gemara Meseches Megillah on page 14b, 
Let me tell you what the Gemara says. And then we'll go back to Rashi. The Gemara asked a question. Big day, Malchus mi The Pasuk, the verse should have said, clothes of royalty. Why does it say royalty? Says the Gemara, Omer Abechanino. Kishalav shasaruach ha-koidesh. Esther was suddenly overwhelmed, wrapped, clothed with the Holy Spirit. Ksiv Hocha says the Gemara, it says here, Vatilbash, that she was dressed. And then it says, Hosom, there's another Pasuk that says, Veruach Lovsha Esamosai, which is a Pasuk referring to David HaMelech. And over there, that Pasuk refers to Ruach HaKadosh in prophecy. So we understand that the concept of Atilbash, of being reigned in or robed in, just like you'd be robed in clothes, you could be robed in the Holy Spirit. From here we know that Esther was a prophetess, that she actually had the Holy Spirit upon her. Which is pretty interesting because usually prophecy is not Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit is not prophecy. Prophecy has halachas that are attached to it. Holy Spirit is more of a proverbial idea. Tzadikim have a Holy Spirit. And here it's almost interchangeable. Which indicates that there's not far or much distance between the Holy Spirit and actual prophecy. And Esther was a prophet, but here was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't prophecy, but the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit mean? <laughs> what does it mean, the Holy Spirit? Ruach HaKodesh. <laughs> Very good. What does it mean, the Holy Spirit? Ruach HaKodesh. What does Ruach HaKodesh mean? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so what does that mean? What does it look like when you get dressed in the Holy Spirit? You think there's an aura? You think you can see an aura? I don't know, because I never saw the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know, I don't know what it feels like. I don't have any Holy Spirits. But here's, let me, let me share with you a story. I told this story before, but this is just makes a point. This, I, I tell the story in two versions, two iterations, two different Rebbes, two different times. So the one, one is at the turn of the last century. A young man wants to seek his fortune in the United States of America. Turn of the century. His father's very concerned. They called America Trefin and Medina. It's a country that swallows up your Yiddishkeit. People throw the film overboard before they get into Ellis Island. You have to ask the Rebbe. The boy is not very religious, certainly not a great chassid, but his father insists. They write a letter to the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, the fifth Rebbe. The Rebbe answers, absolutely not. The boy says, what do you think he's going to say? He doesn't want anybody to go to America. The boy goes, what happens? Tragically, the sink ship, the, the ship sinks in the Atlantic. The boy never makes it. Father is heartbroken, and he says later to the Rebbe, "If the Rebbe would have said that the ship was going to sink, I'm sure my son would have listened." You know, it could be wayward, but still a chassid. The Rebbe says the ship is going to sink. He, he wouldn't have gone. He says the Rebbe, "I didn't know the ship was going to sink." So the Rebbe says, "So the boy chassid says, why did the Rebbe say absolutely not?'" So the Rebbe said, when he asked if, the sh- if he should go, I felt very uneasy, a cold feeling came over me, and uh, I, I, I knew it wasn't the right thing. Fast forward to our Rebbe. The year is 1975, I think. A great Israeli general is in the Rebbe's study. His name is Ariel Sharon. Maybe some of you heard his name before. Ariel Sharon has... Uh, this meeting with the Rebbe, he had 
that the Rebbe a number of years earlier, when he had the tragedy, when, when the kids were playing with a gun, and one son got killed, it died in his own arms, the Rebbe reached out to him, wrote him a letter, and the, a relationship ensued. He came to see the Rebbe in 1968, and subsequently in 1969 and 70. So, sorry, this is before the Yom Kippur War. This is, I think, 72, the story. So the Rebbe says to him, when are you going back? So he says, this afternoon, tonight. So the Rebbe says, it's not a good idea. You should delay your flight. I think the miracle is that Ariel Sharon listened. Cancels his flight, rebooks for a different day. That plane he was supposed to be on was hijacked. The Arab terrorists had one person they were looking for, Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon comes back to the Rebbe, and he says to the Rebbe, if the Rebbe knew that the plane was going to be hijacked, why didn't he tell me? We could have caught them. We could have prevented, lives were in danger, could have prevented the danger. In the end, nobody was hurt. Everybody was rescued. So the Rebbe says, I didn't know. So the real Sharon says, then why did the Rebbe tell me not to go? So the Rebbe said, when you told me you were going tonight, a deep feeling of unease overcame me. And the Rebbe said, I learned to trust my instincts. This is Ruach HaKedosh. Or at least that's what we know of Ruach. That's the symptoms we know of Ruach HaKedosh. Or at least that's what those who have Ruach HaKedosh decided to tell us about Ruach HaKedosh. Exactly what it is. When you'll have it, you'll know. <laughs> and if you didn't have it, it's okay. That's fine. You're with the rest of us. Esther knew she had Ruach HaKedosh. That means that's Vatilbash. She felt it overcome her. In other words, Miguel is just telling a story. Vatilbash. Esther... Esther was wrapped in Ruch HaKadosh. She knew at this point, could be never before, could be up until this point, Esther was just a very righteous woman, a very dedicated, observant, holy woman, pious woman, listens to Mordechai, real chassid. But she never felt anything. At this point, Esther suddenly has Ruch HaKadosh come upon her. Now, when we, when we see it through this prism, everything starts to make a lot of sense. Like, the question was, how did Esther go without eating? How did she fast? How did she have confidence? When Ruach HaKadosh comes on you, she knew this is working. This is going to happen. So, on the third day, Esther is now wrapped in the Shechina, which incidentally, according to Kabbalah, teachers of Kabbalah, Ruach HaKadosh is Midas HaMalchus, is Fidas HaMalchus. So it fits perfectly. I didn't see that, but just from my knowledge of, of Chassidus and Kabbalah, that's in the, and it's called Malchus. Shechina is called Malchus. So the Shechina, the Divine Presence is upon Esther, which is Malchus, make perfect sense. Vatilbash Esther Malchus, it, it follows the Gemara by, by virtue of a Pasuk, but it follows perfectly, the language of Kabbalah is perfect. It's exactly what it should have said. And so, Esther sets out. She's wearing royal raiments. She's dressed. Now, the Ibn Ezra says she put on her royal raiments, which includes the crown. And because she had the crown on, nobody could speak to her to stop her. She came, she came with the crown. She came wearing the royal clothing. She didn't always wear royal clothing. And this might not have been a normative occasion of wearing royal clothing. But the Ibn Ezra, on a very pshat level, says that she put on the sign of being a malka, of being a queen. It's like I, I once had to go somewhere. It was a terrible accident. And I had to get straight through to what was going on. I had to be there. So I just put on my chaplain's windbreaker. 
I have a windbreaker. I usually keep it in the car or I ran to go home to stop it. So this way, I put on, I have also a, a necklace with my badge. I put a badge with my, so I just, I didn't have to stop and explain. If I'm wearing either a police uniform or a thing, I was there, I just went like this. I didn't ask any questions. I went right through. So I needed to do what I needed to do and whatever. I did what I had to do then. I had to help uh, a certain situation. Point is that sometimes if you wear certain clothing, you become identified by it. So Esther needed to make sure she can get through. Because remember, Achashverosh is surrounded by guards. This is the most mighty, powerful man in the world. And uh, just because you're his wife doesn't mean anything. (laughs) The last wife just got killed. So Esther has to do something that as soon as they come, they right away go away from her. So therefore, Ibn Ezra says she puts on the royal crown. And like I said, it's quite possible that this was not an appropriate time to wear it. She wasn't supposed to wear the royal crown. That was probably for like state dinners or official functions. And here, she's just going. She's wearing the royal robes, the official robes, the official crown. But Esther put all that on, which is even more of a risk, because Ahasuerus sees she's coming, are you pulling rank on me? Well, it doesn't say Ahasuerus is necessarily wearing his crown. He actually was, we're going to find out. But it doesn't say he was wearing his royal clothes. Esther doesn't know that. And you just you put on your royal clothes just like that. It's actually like probably not even legal. She probably wasn't even allowed to do that. But Ibn Ezra explains why she did it and how the truth is, though Rashi, it helps. Why, so why didn't she do that? She had the Ruach HaKadosh. She knew she's gonna, she knew she's gonna be successful. Okay, so now she's comfortable. She can put on the royal robes, the ermine, the crown, whatever else it is, and she heads off. Alright, she heads off, and she is now going to this fateful moment. She's going to meet none other than the king himself. The king who had no problem killing his own wife, for disobeying his commands. The Targum Sheni, which is, uh, says that it was kind of the third day, Katsomis Esther, Tlos, and Tzomin, after Esther fast, three fasts, only after three fasts, that's when Esther, it says, Koma min Afra, she gets off the ground, umin kitma kat she was no longer bent over. Up until now, she was in a contrite, Humble, prayerful posture, and now she stood very tall. Now she became regal. Everything has changed. The Manas Halevi says that Esther detested the royal robes. She hated it. She hated this position. She wasn't happy. She wanted to escape. She never put the royal robes on with a sense of confidence. She put them on under duress. But today, she put the royal robes on, and she was confident. Today, it was a choice she made. Today she was going to be a queen. Today she was going to pull rank. Today she was going to go and take the destiny of the Jewish people in her own hands. That's the Vatilbash. So the Targum Shem says, and with this newfound confidence, Esther now held, head held high, wearing her royal clothing. And the Targum the Sheni describes what the clothing looked like. Sequined, bejeweled, with fine, the finest silks, and beautiful uh, uh, diamonds and precious stones, stone diamond studded and crusted, some uh, dress, beautiful, beautiful, and with a, with a gold crown on her head, and gold footwear, golden slippers. She sets off. <laughs> I heard you said she's going to the academy. <laughs> Except this was no show. <laughs> this was the real deal. This was the real deal. <laughs> Serious stuff. You know, the, um, the Mamloyas goes into more details. He describes, 
It says, it says in the Targumenison that the fine jewels were brought me at its Tarshish, from the land of Tarshish. But in Targumenison, it says, with, with gold, fine gold, and fine diamonds, Sheheviu Oisan me Africa. They were brought from Africa. Maybe this is like the, the, di- the mines, that, uh, diamond mines that are found in, in, the, in the southern edge of Africa. But anyway, that's what it says. Targumenison says Africa. And, and she sets off. The Mamloyas also says that framed with jewels, the finest jewels, she was like stunning, stunning, wearing these diamonds and jewels and gold. She was like a vision. And she sets off like this. The main thing is, the Ruach HaKadosh was upon her. And the, the Mamloyas says, what did Esther do to merit Ruach HaKadosh? Because up until this point, she never had Ruach HaKadosh. What, what did she do to merit it? I love the answer. I love the answer. The answer says, Shahoisa Shaskonis, because she was silent. She could keep her word. She could keep her mouth closed. Mordechai said, do not tell anybody. Don't tell anybody where you're from. Don't tell anybody your background. Don't tell anybody your nation. Mum. Shah. Quiet. Lochain says the mam lawyers. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave her a shechina and her face glowed with the radiance of the sun. Why do I love this? I love this because I'm a chassid. And I believe that Esther was the great, greatest chassid. Like the Rebetzin was the greatest chassid of the Rebbe, Esther was the greatest chassid of Mardachai. And she had this enormously difficult thing to do. She had to keep her mouth quiet. Imagine the pressure she was under. But the Rebbe said quiet, she was quiet. When a chassid listens to the Rebbe, the merit of HaKadosh was necessary. That's just my personal interpretation. Don't hold it against me. That's, a, <laughs> that's how I understand it. This is the real, this is the beauty of Esther being the, and Amloya says it. He's, he's quoting from the Manus HaLevi. He's not the, he's quoting from the Zoyer. He says, this is the reason, Beglal Shahoisa Shatkanit. She was quiet. She followed Mordechai's instructions. It's interesting, the, the Rebbe repeated many times from the Friedrich Rebbe that there are three madregas, there are three levels of a balsod. A balsod, a person who keeps a secret. One person who keeps a secret, but everybody knows that they have a secret. Everybody knows they have a secret. And they drop little hints about the secret, but they never tell the whole story. They, they keep it under the wraps and never... Another person, you don't even get a hint. You don't get a nothing. But you have a sense that maybe this person has a secret. And then the third person, person you don't even know they have a secret. So that's the real balsod. Esther has unbelievable self-control and doesn't breathe a word. When you have that kind of self-control, you rein yourself in, you do what has to be done, and do what's right, because the Rebbe told you to, you merit Ruch HaKedosh. And so Esther went. Esther went. And the Holy Zohar says, when Esther went, the Spirit of God went before her. The Shekhinah went before her. So Esther is not now coming, not only resplendent in physical, material trappings of beauty, but Esther is now, so to speak, touched by the presence of Hashem. She's walking with the presence of Hashem. Impressive stuff. Okay, let's move on. What's the next thing that happens? What's the next verb? The verse begins, Vahibi Omar Shlishi. What's the third day? The next verb is, the first verb of the, of the Pasuk is Vatilbash. Esther dresses herself. She dons. What does that mean? Multiple meanings, as you see. What's the next verb? 
What's the next thing she does? She stands. Why does she stand? Doesn't, doesn't, never says she went. We understood she went. But it says Vatamid. She stopped. Well, why did she stop? What, what's going on over here? Before I go to Vatamid, I, w- I want to share one more, one more tiny detail. I want to share um, that, that uh, in the Biuri Hagra it says that the Shekhinah, the Ruach HaKodesh, is only Shoira on a Guf Shover. The Ruach HaKodesh is only, uh, applies itself to a body that's quote-unquote broken. Which doesn't mean physically broken. But it means that you break the willpower. So Chassidim used to say that the best preparation for Avedus Hashem is to break the body's will. Not to do what the body wants. Not because that's, that's in and of itself Avedus Hashem. That's the preparation for holiness. And this dovetails back to something that we, we learned earlier in our previous class. The Ma'am quotes the Yesha Aleikim by saying that the fast of three days was a very powerful thing because it weakened the body. And this allowed that the light of Hashem should be able to shine forth because usually the body obscures and obfuscates. This allowed. So that's just a little addition. Okay, sorry about that. So was a little thing I to throw in. Go back to Vatamait. Vatamait. Vatamait means she stood. Where did she stand? Bechatzar beis hamelech. Which is like she had pause. She stopped suddenly. Why did she stop? What happened here? Here's something fascinating. The Ma'am Loya says that when Esther walked into the Chatzar Beis HaMelech, what do you think it was full of? Many images. Many icons. What kind of icons were there? Idolatry. The monarchy was always linked to the religion. Always linked to the religion. If you look in Europe, if you look in, 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 in the Muslim lands, it's always linked to religion. The, the king always, or the queen always, wanted his or her power linked to the religion, so that way he could use the religion to bully the people into submission. Even, even the royalty, the royal house of England, is connected to Church of England. So, so Achashverosh, he was no great believer himself, but, but he made sure that his palace should be filled with idols. This is a problem. This is a problem. When Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to pray, because the Pharaoh asked him to, Moshe Rabbeinu said, what to the Pharaoh? He said, min ha'ir efros et kapoi. When I leave the city, then I will raise my hands up. Why? Rashi says, because the city was filled with idols. And the idols, it's a problem for the presence of Hashem. Can't pray in the presence of idols. So the Ba'am Loyas actually says, When she came in there, There were all these idolatrous images. So what happened? The Divine Presence left her. Uh-oh. Here she reigned herself in holiness. She robed herself in the Holy Spirit. She felt that the presence of Hashem is going before her. She comes to the palace. She comes into the courtyard. And it leaves her. Imagine the drama. Imagine. Imagine what Esther's feeling. So what does she do? So she begins to pray. And here, Ma'am Leah tells us something fascinating. The Menoy Salevi says... She began to pray chapter 22 of Tehillim. 
And in fact, the prayer, the details of Esther's prayer are found in the Targum Sheni and they're found in the Mamloyas. The Mamloyas interprets them or kind of matches them to the different verses of Psalm 22. So when she came here, the first thing she said is, Eli, Eli, Loma Azavtoni. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? So she says, why? Why Kaili, Kaili? And why did the Shekhinah go away? That itself, the Padus Yaakov says, but Esther is going on this holy mission. How could Hashem not be with her? We see, this is, doesn't say Menos Yaakov, I'm, Padus Yaakov, I'm adding this. When it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu penetrating the inner qu- qu- courtroom, the, the inner throne room of the Pharaoh, it says, Boy El Paroi. Hashem says to Moshe, not go. What does boy mean? Come. So the Holy Zohar says, Hashem said to Moshe, Idarin Idarin. We're going in the inner sanctum. We're going in the throne room within the throne room. I'm with you. You're not going alone. Boy, I'm come. I'm going with you. Surely there was full of idols there. So Melo, when you want to say that Moshe Rabbeinu has to pray, he can't pray because there's idols there, that's a halacha. He has to follow the Shulchan Aruch. But when it's God's presence, so why did God's presence leave her? So what if there's idols? Says the Bedus Yaakov, because at that moment, suddenly the Kitrog, the decree against the Jewish people, ferociously came back. If you remember, why did this whole story happen? The Gemara asks, why did it happen? That's from Shemba Yochai. Shemba said back to his Talmud, what do you think? So they said, because they ate from the meal. They ate from the meal. Everybody questions, why would there be a reason for genocide? And the Gemara's conclusion is, because they prostrated themselves before the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. And now when these idols, suddenly the idols were reminiscent of the idols. It brought back the sin of the Jewish people that they worshipped idols. And here Esther's in front of the idols. So the Shekhinah leaves it. So what's her prayer? She says, Kaili, Kaili, two times. Why Kaili, Kaili, Loma Zavtani? She says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because twice before the Jewish people behaved inappropriately and yet, despite the fact that the Jewish people worshipped an idol, Hashem was with them. One of the two times, one is at the, at the Yam, at the crossing of the Reed Sea. At the crossing of the Reed Sea, there was a man named Micha. And this miserable guy was holding an idol and singing praises to his idol as he walked through the Reed Sea. Did God abandon the Jewish people? No. So Esther says, Bechazos, nonetheless, he didn't throw them away. And then a short while later, you were at Har Sinai. And what happened at Har Sinai? <laughs> Very big trouble over there. And Hashem forgives the Jewish people in the end. So that's why she says, this is not a reason for Hashem's presence to abandon me. So what does it mean, Vatamayid then? From this perspective, what does it mean? What does Vatamayid really mean? Vatama, it really means, says Menos Halevi, it comes from the Hebrew word for prayer. What's the Hebrew word for prayer? What do we call, what's the Hebrew word for the Shmonasre, which just means 18? Amidah. In Amidah, Elolosh and the Gemara Brachas tells us, Amidah means prayer. Amidah means prayer. And according to this, Vatamid Bechatzar Besamelech, Noichach, corresponding, facing, to what? The Pasuk continues, Nechach Beis HaMelech, the king's house, says the Menas this is a euphemism. Who's the king's house? King's house is the Beis HaMikdash. 
When you daven, the Gemara says, where should you face? Yerushalayim, face east. Well, she wasn't facing east. She was in Persia. She was facing west or southwest. But the point is, she was facing the Beis Migdash. So what does the verb Vatamid mean? Vatamid means she began to pray. This was serious business. And even if you don't want to follow the Midrashic approach of Vatamid, that the Shekhinah abandoned her, let's just say when Esther came to this moment, when she finally arrived, now the seriousness, the gravity of the, what she's about to do suddenly gripped her. She is staring death in the face. And so Esther began to pray. In the Chatzar Beis HaMelech HaPnimis, Noichach Beis HaMelech, in the outer courtyard, just facing the courtyard, that's where she began to pray. So, the Ma'am Loyas has a fascinating way of explaining this. He says there were seven chambers that you had to get through before you could get to the place where Achashverosh was. And Esther wearing her royal clothes, like Ibn Ezra says, she walked through. She came suddenly. She appeared suddenly. And because she appeared suddenly, the guards were in a state of shock. Suddenly the queen is there. Suddenly she's resplendent. Gold, a face shining like the sun. They were overwhelmed. She got to the first, the second, the third. In the fourth, they came to stop her. Vatamid. They stopped her. As soon as they noticed, as soon as she stopped, they noticed her. And that's when the ones from the previous, they could, their jurisdiction had expired. They couldn't go into the fourth to catch her. And the ones inside also couldn't stop her because she hadn't entered, she hadn't entered their, gone past their gate yet. And as they were thinking what to do, and Esther at this point surrounded by armed guards from one side, armed guards from the other side, at this point she stops and she prays. This is when she davens. Nochach means corresponding to or facing. So she's facing this royal chamber. Now, it's very interesting to note, I'm just going gonna, gonna to quickly share something with you before we go back to the prayer and the Midrashic stuff. The famous question is, the Malvmas' question, but it's a old, very old question. The Pasuk seems to say, talk about two places. There's Chatzar Beis HaMelech, and then there's, and then there's Beis HaMelech. What's the difference between Beis HaMelech, oh sorry, Beis HaMalchus. Chatzar Beis HaMelech, and then it says, that the king is sitting, Hamelech Yoshev, the king is sitting, Al Kisim Al on the throne of royalty, Bebeis Hamalchus, in the house of royalty, in the house of the royalty. So what's the difference? But in the beginning it says Beis Hamelech, Noichach Beis Hamelech. When Esther comes, it says that Esther enters into the house, the courtyard of the house of the king, Noichach Beis Hamelech, facing the house of the king. That's when it talks about Esther. When it talks about Achashverosh, it says Vahamelech and the king Yosheva Kisum Al Chusay. What was he doing? First half of the verse is Esther. The second half is Vahamelech. What is the king doing? What's the verb there? Yosheva. He's sitting. Where is he sitting? Al Kisum Al Chusay on his throne. Where is he sitting? The base of Malchus, in the hand, in the house of Malchus. Noichach Pesach Abayus. He's right, corresponding, facing the door. So we have two things facing over here. Esther's facing him. He's facing her. And when it comes to Esther, we say base Hamelach. And when it comes to Achashverosh, we say base Hamalchus. So the Vilna Gaon says something very interesting. He says base Hamalchus means the seat of government. It's not his personal throne room. The seat of government is where he used to rule where he used to actually sit in judgment of people and he's engaged, so to speak, in his royal responsibilities. The Malbum elaborates and explains this. He says the king had a personal throne room, a private throne room, private chamber, and the king had the governmental chamber. 
So there was the government, the chair of governance, the chair of the throne where he would govern from, and then there was the chair of the private throne room where the, chair, where the king would be, when people come for private meetings. So what happened is usually the king was in the inner chamber. But here, Hashgach Pratis, the king decided to be in the outer chamber. What was the Hashgach Pratis? Hashgach Pratis was that Esther saw the king immediately. The Mamluyas explains that had Esther not seen the king immediately, Haman saw what was going on. Haman saw the king, queen was coming. He immediately called the soldiers. He said, let's kill the queen. She broke the law. Don't ask any questions. She broke the law, he killed the queen. And that would have happened. But unlucky for Haman, and lucky if you want to use that word for Esther, the king happened to be right there. Neuchach, facing. He was facing Pesach Habayis. He was facing the door. So the moment the royal doors open, and suddenly Esther's there. So nobody could, nobody could meddle. Nobody could mix in. Now it was in the king's hands. Otherwise it would be in Haman's hands. The soldiers could have acted without. They were under strict orders. Anybody who enters, kill. But here Esther walked, and Achashverosh happened to be sitting right there. Happened to be Neuchach. That's why the word Neuchach shows up a bunch of times in this Pasuk. It's a funny Pasuk. So it says, facing, facing. Everybody's facing. Why is everybody facing? Because it was a perfect face-off. That's why I called the royal face-off. Esther happens to be there at exactly that moment, and they happen, Achashverosh happens to see her. And what happens? He takes a look at Esther. Esther came, it says, the Mamaloyas says, according to Medrash Shechetayv, that and the Medrash Tillam, that Esther came with her maidens. A maiden on her right, a maiden on her left, and a maiden holding her dress in the back because the law said that the royal garments couldn't touch the ground. So she walked in like that with an entourage. Now that she walked in as if she owned the place. She walked in like royalty. She's wearing the royal, uh, the, the, the number one uniform, so to speak. She's wearing all the royal jewels, which you're not allowed to wear just like that. This is like a very official moment. The moment Ahasuerus saw her, so the Medrash says, he began to grind his teeth in anger. This guy was a lunatic. A madman. He ground his teeth fuming. And he said to himself, Woe is to what I've lost, but I haven't forgotten. And he thought of his first wife. He says, The first wife I call her, she doesn't show up. And this one shows up without being called. Esther raises her eyes, and she sees the fury. The, the, the language of the Ma'am quoting the Medrash Tillamis, she saw his eyes blazing with fury, like lightning, flashing with anger. You know what this meant? She's dead. It's over. Flaming eyes, fuming eyes, anger raging. And Esther suddenly is shocked. That's it. It didn't work. I prayed, I fasted, I hoped. It's finished. Nivhalomioid. She became totally terrified. It says, Liba Nechlash. She began, her heart began to, to, to stop beating. Her heart rate dropped. She became very, very faint. And as she's there in this shocked, faint position, suddenly Achashverosh gets up from his throne. And he runs and embraces Esther. And he says, how come you didn't uh, come in? I'm so happy that you're here. Why did you have to wait? And so on and so forth. This was a miracle. This is a miraculous moment. So up until here, everything is Ashgach HaPratis. Everything is, you know, you have to want to see the miracles to be able to appreciate them. So divine providence. There's a Noyim Ali Melech. Noyim Ali Melech says that the miracles, you'll, if, if you look for them, you'll find them. And if you weren't there and you didn't look, you didn't notice it. So the miracles have to be looked for. That's, that's the miracles of the, of, the, of the Purim story. But this was really like, this was an open miracle. 
this is not just a miracle. You have to, he happened to be sitting in that room, so the door happened to open. He happened to see him. Here, she's eyes blazed with fury. He's grinding his teeth. She saw it's finished. At that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu suddenly places the chain of Esther in his, in his eyes. That's how verse 2 continues when Esther suddenly attracts his attention and he melts. He melts before her and he starts offering her half the palace and so on and so forth. Now this was an unbelievable moment, Amloya says, because they, the Haman was planning to run tell the king. He was planning to make the king even angrier. He said, that wife of yours, they, they know you never get them right. They never listen. These women, they always mess around. And Achishverosh would be even angrier and then he'll be ashamed in front of Haman. And then he was, I'm not going to relent. I'll, I'll show her. But before Haman could get there, it was already the face-off. And this royal face-off, fuming with anger, Hashem makes a miracle. And Esther, all of a sudden, is embraced by the king. Now, before we conclude today's class, I want to share with you some details of the prayer. It's uh, the, the, In the Targum Shani, it goes into the details of the prayer. Amazing, amazing prayers that, that, that Esther offered. One of the things that she emphasizes in the prayer is the idea of the three days. And she brings to mind the three days of Avram Avinu with the Akedah. Hashem came to Avram. And he said, Go take your son, the one you love, the only one. But it wasn't sudden. It was only by Hiba Yemashlishi. It was only on the third day when he raised his eyes up. Why? Rashi says, because he shouldn't say that Avram was overwhelmed. He acted in a shocked way. No. It was a choreographed moment. It was carefully thought through. So too, so Esther says, I waited three days. And she says, you promised that you'll never forget the Akedah. You promised that that sacrifice will always be before you as a schus. She began to mention the merit of Avraham Yitzchak Yaakov. She mentions the merit of Binyamin, which is her ancestor. And interestingly, the Medrash Abbas says, Vatil Esther Malchus, love Shomalchus base of Viha, the royalty of her home. She's a descendant of Shaul HaMelech. There was royalty in her blood. She mentions the merit of of Binyamin, and towards the end of her prayer, she also mentions the merit of Yosef, which are both the merit of Beir Tzaddik. It says there were only a few people who, who weren't supposed to die. Binyamin was one of them. Binyamin is a great Tzaddik. So Binyamin is Tzaddik Tachten, and Yosef is Tzaddik Elyon. And both of these are the sons of Rachel Imenu, who is the ancestress of Esther. Because Esther is descended from the tribe of Binyamin. So she brings to mind this three days, she brings to mind the Akedah. And she talks about the idea of trusting in Hashem. And she said, Yosef trusted in Hashem. And then she talks about all this. Uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenal, beautiful, very, very touching prayer. I don't have time to go through it. She references the idea of Yonah as the third day, which we talked about in the beginning. She talks about Harsinai. She talks about fasting three days, corresponding to the idea of Kohanim Leviim in Yisraelim which is the classes, the three classes of the Jewish people, how they stood at Harsinah and said, Nasa Nishma. She brings to mind all of these things in her prayer, and Esther's prayers are answered. She's not killed. Achashverosh is ready to listen. And at this point, now the stage is set. Now after the royal face-off, that first fateful moment, Esther got through that first moment that wasn't supposed to happen. She gets through that moment, and from here, things start to fall into place.